So how about if we begin with uh, a little Christmas carol, if we can. Said the night wind to the little lamb, do you see what I see? Said the little lamb to the shepherd boy, do you hear what I hear? And the shepherd boy said to the mighty king, do you know what I know? So can I elaborate just a little bit on seen to unseen and make it just a little bit bigger in scope of what I'm trying to do? I, I shape this question just in a way to um, um, confuse things so I can clarify it. The confusing part. Grasping the metaphysical realities of the universe is an epistemological dilemma. You, you knew that was obvious, right? Um, how about if I word it this way? Our senses are broken. You may think you can see. Um, I'm hoping to be able to make claims to you, no, you're really blind. But you think you can hear. But I will try to convince you, according to scriptures, that you are deaf. You might think you know. But I want to share with you, you can't know unless it's revealed to you. The life of Jesus is nothing that can be guessed. As a matter of fact, just about all Eastern religions are more philosophies. If you think clearly about the topic, you can reach to the divine world. Not so in the Judeo-Christian ethic. It's a revelation. Without the revelation, you can't possibly guess what Yahweh is like. You can't possibly guess what Jesus is like. And you never would have guessed that the Holy Spirit not just wants to come upon you, but wants to come in you and dwell in your heart. You never would have guessed that unless you were told. So the problem is, if you're blind and you're deaf and you don't know, you've got problems unless you encounter a God that wants to reveal himself to you. Thank goodness we have such a thing. And thank goodness we have such a book that shows it to us. Let me just tell you, if I can, two brief stories, and then I'll get into the text. First story, first story, Mrs. Moger. Mrs. Moger was in her late 70s, early 80s. She was the sister of a parishioner when Angie and I were pastoring up in Cleveland, Ohio. Now, I pastored in a far eastern suburb, and she was in a hospital in the far western part of Cleveland. We had only been there for a few days. I said, sure, I'll go and visit. My gosh, I didn't know it was like a 90-mile drive from my house to the hospital. So I got in the car and drove over because I was, I think, a pastor for two days at the time. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I did know that somebody asked me to go do this, so pastors are probably supposed to be obedient. So I did. I drove over to the hospital in the west side of Cleveland, went in to visit her. I didn't know what to do. I knew she was sick. I knew she was dying. It'd probably be a good idea if there was a pastor in the room. So I went. I don't know if you've ever been around anybody that has died. But if you have, there are probably spiritual things you ought to do. I was unaware of what they were. So I began to pray for her. She was laying on the bed. I began to pray. And you're trying to think, okay, do I pray that God would heal her? Um, and if he doesn't, does that demean God? So I don't want to pray that. 
Do I pray that she should feel better? No, she's really dying, and we know she's dying. Do you actually pray over somebody and welcome her into heaven, like passing last rites on somebody? It was the most confusing prayer I had ever prayed and she had ever heard. <laughs> she stopped, grabbed my head, slammed my head down onto her, onto her chest, put her hand on me and began to pray. Here's what she said. Lord, this boy needs the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so here's my question. What was it that she saw that knew what was missing in my life? I mean, she could have said, this boy needs to go to seminary. He is undereducated. This boy needs a mentor. He needs help. That's not what she prayed. Very brief prayer. This boy needs the Holy Spirit. And the drive back from the hospital to Mayfield Heights, Ohio, was the most spiritual experience I've ever had in my life. Because she was spot on. I was pastoring under my own strength. And she saw it. Second story is uh, really the man that led me to the Lord. His name's Joe Duval. His son was a student here. He's a district superintendent in Ohio. I don't think I had been a Christian more than about 15 minutes. And he walked up to me and he handed me a Bible and said, Here, Dave, you are a teacher. Teach. And as if that's ever happened in any way, shape, or form to you, you probably would have said the same thing I said. Give me a couple of years to learn and study, and then I'll do it. He said, no, fear is not an option. You are going to be teaching. I want you to be teaching an adult Sunday school class beginning this Sunday. Now, hear me. I was a late bloomer, 25 when I first heard about Jesus, um, 26 when I was saved, this is at age 27. You're going to be a teacher, and you're going to teach this Sunday. Teach one chapter of Scripture a week. If somebody asks you a question about something else from some other chapter, say, I'll get back with you on that. We'll go back to what I know. And I did that for three years. 150 chapters of Scripture later, the Holy Spirit that Mrs. Moger played for, prayed for said, now it's time to go to Bible college. What was it that Pastor Joe saw that was a spiritual potential that was missing? Because nobody else saw it but him. What did Mrs. Moger see as she was dying? And what was it that Pastor Joe saw that actually fueled my calling for the rest of my life? Do you see those things? Maybe I'll ask the question. Do you want to see those things? Do you want to see God at work in this room in maybe ways that nobody else can see? Do you want to be able to speak words of life into somebody else's life? I don't see very many heads shaking. I sure do. I want to know what God's up to in the world and to be able to partner with him in it. Don't, don't you? Can you imagine what Marion would be like if just everybody in this room would be able to walk around and to have a conversation going on with somebody else in Marion and God at the same time and actually sharing his words into their life? Would you like that? Could you imagine what Marion would be like if 
we actually participated and saw what was missing in people's lives and be able to speak that into it and what potential was there and speak and teach them into life, I'd, I'd like to do that. Every once in a while, every once in a while, I will say something and somebody will say to me, that's scary because that's exactly what I was praying for last night. But it doesn't happen enough. I want to see what is unseen and participate with the Lord in the ushering in of his kingdom. I think you do too. And I'm hoping as Pastor Steve preaches through this and you come to Crosswalk and you, well, probably one of the best ways to do it is for you to make a spiritual commitment before you hear anything else that Steve says or anything else that I say. Just agree in advance that when God speaks, you will act on his behalf. I mean, don't wait and then make a discernment, whether you will or not. Make a decision right now. I say yes to the voice of God speaking into my life. Because if you don't say yes now, what you're basically doing is saying, I'm going to pause and wait, and then if he speaks, I'll decide if I want to do it or not, which is actually making a plan or a decision in advance of planned disobedience. Don't, don't do that. If you want to quench the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, just say no to God. Just say no. And it's not like he will cease speaking. He's the Lord God of the universe. He's going to continue to speak. But what will happen is your ears will begin to atrophy and you won't be able to hear. Your eyes will begin to dim and you won't be able to see. And you'll question every activity. Could I just ask you at the beginning of this series, the beginning of these discussions, just say yes. And see what God will do through you. It'll transform dorms. It'll transform homes. It'll transform workplaces. It will transform communities just by saying yes. There are three sets of glasses that I can talk about, and then we'll just get right into the text. One do you have, like, two sets of glasses and being able to see things? I mean, do you have your, 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 your earthly glasses, and then do you kind of take off and put on spiritual glasses to try to see God's world? I mean, you have the physical glasses and then the metaphysical. You know what I mean by that? I mean, it's the world that you read in the biblical text. You know what I'm talking about. You read it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, you're, you're reading it for a short period. I mean, most of us have these devotional moments, don't we? Where we enter the biblical world and we see the world that God creates. And then we take those glasses off and go back to our regular lives. As if those two worlds do not necessarily cohabit the same space or time. Pastor Steve has already told us those two worlds are right in front of you at all times. So probably having two sets of glasses is not a good way to function. 
Maybe what you need is actually bifocals. You can have bifocals that will have the spiritual on top, of course, towards heaven, and the, 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 the physical down below. But then you have to kind of go like this, don't you? You have to physically move your head up to think about godly things, and then you can move your head down and think about earthly things. That's better than two sets of glasses, but it's not quite what God would like. How about if you actually had vision surgery? I did. I had LASIK surgery. I wore glasses for years and years and had LASIK surgery. But I told the doctor, I don't want to have to read or wear reading glasses. So he said, we've got an option for it. It's called monovision, which means I read with my left eye and I drive with my right. And I can see both worlds at the same time. That's what I pray will happen to all of us this series and my prayer is that it won't end when Steve preaches the last sermon. He is just going to be plowing up the ground of the reality of what it is like to use both worlds, the seen and the unseen, and to be able to have, and this is, this is a, it's not a biblical term, but it's a biblical idea, that you will have a Christian imagination of what God is doing right here. What's the conversation going on right now? You're, you're hearing me, what is he saying? And you're used to using your ears, used to using your eyes, and it's not a surprise. It's not, oh my gosh, I heard from God. It is, God, I'm not hearing from you. Speak louder, more clearly. Listen to the words as we get into the text. Listen to the words that Samuel prays in the temple. Here's what he says. Speak, Lord. For your servant is listening. If you really want to know what I think the best prayer in the New Testament is, there's a lot of good ones, and Jesus is the author of a number of them. But the best prayer is by Mary. We're just coming out of Christmas. Do you remember in Luke, in the early chapters, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says, you will be pregnant with the Messiah. I don't know about you, that would be troubling to most young girls. There's all kinds of, uh, of issues culturally that work in that. Here is her response. May it be to me according to your word. Those are the two prayers I want you to have in mind as we're moving into this. Because I will share things. I know Bud, um, at the last session, will share things. Uh, Amanda Drury and uh, um, Dr. Dr. Crossman that will share things that will be troubling, enlightening um, it may actually mean change in your life. So, can we begin with the groundwork that you will say yes in advance before God speaks? You won't wait till he speaks. He will know as he speaks into your ear, your heart is ready to be receptive to new truth, to life change, to confrontation with you first and then maybe somebody else. Would you be willing to say yes. If so, let's pray together. Father, speak, Lord, for your servants, plural, are listening, and may it be to each of us, without hesitation, according to your word.
Um, the genesis of the problem, if you really wonder where this comes about, blindness is really an act of the fall. If you've got your Bibles, whether they be electronic or paper or something in between, would you open them to Genesis chapter 3? I'm going to be reading from the New International, so Genesis 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. Hear that phrase, that the Lord God had made. Catch it. Hebrew, Yahweh, Elohim. This is the personal God. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from it, the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Just, just a basic observation. He never said you couldn't touch it. She was adding to the word rather than just simply obeying the word. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, listen, your eyes will be opened. The chief of all liars has just made the first lie to her. Your eyes will be opened. Which should tell you, if you eat of this, your eyes will be closed. Am I making sense? This is where blindness begins. Adam and Eve... Walk with Yahweh Elohim in the cool of the day, seeing him, hearing him, and being at peace. And the liar of all liars says, if you eat what he has said no to, your eyes will be opened, like there was something missing in their lives. That's the lie. That's the lie. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, and the idea of gaining wisdom, desirable of gaining wisdom, desirable of knowing how to live according to the divine agenda. So instead of talking to God, hearing from God, and seeing from God, I can do that without God. And so what does she do? She ate it. She gave some to her husband who were with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, or I might say the eyes of both of them were eternally dimmed, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So where does this issue of blindness arise? It is a garden issue. It is an issue of attempting to improve upon what God has already given and making it better. It's not a matter of not being satisfied. It is a matter of not trusting what God has made and how he has made you and you having to do something to make it better. Improve upon it rather than just living and being and having your joy in the presence of God. I wish I had an hour just to walk through all these passages 
to walk through the climax of the creation story in Genesis 2, where it says, and the man and the woman were naked and not ashamed. And when they eat this fruit, they realize they're naked and they are ashamed. So the very first thing they do is hide in the trees. We, in our attempts to improve upon God's creation, we bring shame upon ourselves. And shame in the ancient world is different from our world. Shame is often equated with guilt in our culture. Nothing the same whatsoever. Shame to us is something internal and often hidden, but not in the ancient world. It's very external and very public. If you can imagine, if I just want you to think about, are there issues in your life that bring about shame? Don't, don't put your hands up when this is not going to be a show-and-tell kind of thing. But if there are issues, could you imagine what it would be like if we just flashed them all on the overhead projector? That would be ancient shame, as everybody in the community knows what's broken about you. You may know, but what if everybody knew? That's the problem, and we need to hide that. I was talking to one of you about... Uh, just this evening, about when we come into church, we, we, we dress up. We don't have the ability to be able to be naked before each other. And you know, in our hyper-sexualized society, I, I don't mean that kind of nakedness. I mean we really can't reveal ourselves to one another. I can't tell you everything about me, because what if I tell you everything and then you don't like me? So I tell you little tiny bits and pieces until I get to a point I can't cross that line. There's very few people in our lives where we can really be naked and they can see who we are. We practice reversed blindness by the way we hide our identities from each other. And that's the fall. And that's the fall. So how about, can, can, I, can I walk you through a passage of Scripture or several passages of Scripture so we can actually ask the questions? Do, when I say, do you see what I see? I'm speaking as God. I'm speaking as Jesus. Do, do you see what I see in people? Because last time I checked, we have the very same Holy Spirit that he did. And so not only will I talk about can we see that, but what's the cure for our blindness. So turn to me, if you would, to Mark chapter 1, verse 9. Mark chapter 1, verse 9. It's hard these days to hear people flipping through their electronic texts. I could used to, always used to be able to tell when people stopped turning pages, I knew it was time to read. Now it's really tough. It's when Siri says, yes, I'm at chapter 1, verse 9. Chapter 1, verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open. Stop there for a minute. Jesus is being baptized, and he sees heaven being torn open, and the Holy Spirit then comes down on him like a dove. And out of heaven... There is a voice that appears. 
Very strange word. Voices don't appear. This one does. A voice appears and says this to Jesus. You are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. What would you do if I told you it's at this point in the gospel that the heavens are open and you are able to see into the heavens for the length of this gospel? I want to say that again. The heavens are torn open and you can see the events transpiring during this time. The average pastor reads a good chapter of scripture a day. A good pastor. Lay people read much less. We don't have much of an opportunity to really see what's going on in the biblical world. We don't get a chance to see what's going on in heaven as it's being embodied in Jesus. We don't get a chance to see that very often. Maybe five, if you're really deep spiritually, ten minutes a day. I googled this today just to bring it up to date. The average American home watches 5.5 hours of TV every day. Five minutes versus 5.5 hours. What do you see more than anything else? That's just TV. Um, but get your smartphone out and you realize the average person spends almost 10 hours a day watching TV or being influenced by media. And we give our eyes to biblical truth five to ten minutes a day. It is no wonder that we're blind. But we see, but we see what other people want us to see. Do you see into heaven and see what's really going on? I mean, now here's my question to you. Do you really believe there is an unseen reality? Do you believe that? Or do you have to pause and put on the Bible glasses and read the Bible glasses and then you go back to your four and a half or 23 and a half other out? Am I making sense? Jesus sees heavens torn open and the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit we have access to, comes down upon him and remains on him. And then the voice that every single one of us wants to hear. There's not a single person in this room that wouldn't give a limb to hear the voice of God say, you are my beloved daughter. In you I am well pleased. And to realize, in Jesus' life, he has not done anything yet. It is the pleasure of the Father for his son or daughter. That's what we all long for. And we give the Lord five to ten minutes a day. If you want to have blindness begin to dissipate, if you want your ears to begin to be unstopped, you need to spend more time in the biblical world. In the biblical, and I'll use this term, hear it positively, in the biblical story in the world that Jesus says exists just as much 
is what you can see and feel and touch and taste. Will you say yes? Not just to what he says, but to use the means, the means of grace to how he says it. Don't be surprised if you're blind and you don't read the word. Don't be surprised if you're deaf and don't read aloud the Psalms to be able to hear the prayer book that Jesus used to get close to the Father. Don't be surprised. Now I sound like I'm meddling and I don't. Yes, I do mean to meddle. I'm sorry. I do. Because I want you to be able to see. I want you to be able to hear. I want you to be able to engage with people around you that need to hear a word from the Lord. And if they can't hear, what if you end up being their surrogate ears and surrogate eyes? I love the passage just after this one in Mark's Gospel where there are four men that pick up a paralytic and they bring him to Jesus. And the text says this, when Jesus saw their faith, whose faith did Jesus see? Was it the paralytic's faith, or was it the four men? I think the answer is yes. What if you, for a short while, serve to have the ears of somebody else to be able to hear the Word of God? What if you ended up having the eyes of somebody else to be able to see and tell them what is going on in the reality that's unseen? What would your family be like if you actually spoke to them as Jesus spoke through you? How would that change relationships? How would that change your workplace? How would that change your life? This is the realities of the kingdom that Jesus is welcoming us into. These are the realities of the kingdom that Paul is talking about. Oh, he's talking to churches that are broken. He says, you can be healed if you move from darkness into light. This Seen to unseen is everywhere in Scripture. I could have actually opened up the Bible and at random just picked any passage, and it's there. Second passage I want you to turn to is Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, verse 1. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake, And the crowd was gathering around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it on the lake. And while the people were along the shore at the water's edge, he taught them many things by parables. And in his teaching, he said, I I love this, there's only one command in this parable. Listen. (laughs) I'm about to speak. I'm about to teach. Open your ears. A farmer goes out to sow seed. And as he's scattering seeds, some fell on the path. I want you to realize that as God speaks, some of those words may appear to be waste. I mean, he's going to take the seed and throw it everywhere. Some of it's going to fall on faulty ground. He's okay with that. There's sometimes he's speaking. There's sometimes he's acting. And blind people can't see it and deaf people can't hear it. He's okay with that. There are four different types of grounds that are described here in this parable. Would you turn with me now to verse 10? And when he was alone, and the twelve and others were around him, they asked him about the parables. He said, I love this passage, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you.
They missed it. <laughs> it's on the test, and they missed it. But to those on the outside, everything's being said in parables so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, ever hearing, but never understanding. Pastor Steve preached on this passage. It occurs six times in the New Testament. It is one of the dominant themes in all the Gospels and in the book of Acts and in the book of Romans. This is the human dilemma that God is speaking and we can't hear. God is acting and working, and we don't see because we're blind. I mean, we see, but we don't see. Would you turn with me to chapter 6? Chapter 6, verse 30. 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat. He said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in the boat to a solitary place. And many who saw him leaving recognized and ran on foot from all the towns ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, I love these words, he had compassion. I mean, he was going on a uh, vacation. People came, and instead of resting, his first act was that of compassion. Because they were sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Same wording as Mark chapter 4. By this time it was late in the day, so the disciples came to him. This is a remote place. And they said, and already it's very late. Send the people away so that they can... Go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But because he has compassion, he said, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would be eighth month, eighth month of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? I love these words. Go and see. And as you well know, not from this gospel, but from Mark's, or from from John's, they end up bringing back a little boy's lunch out of a crowd of 5,000 men, and then not counting the women and children, they come back with one lunch. lunch. That's all they can see. And then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in green, green grass, And taking the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven. It was torn open. And he gave thanks. And he broke the loaves. And then he gave it to his disciples to set before the people. And I know you know this from a Bible trivia question. But if I ask the question, who fed the 5,000? It wasn't Jesus. It was the disciples. They saw it. They participated in the serving of them. And then they picked up 12 baskets full of loaves, or of leftovers. 12 basketfuls of leftovers, which means they must have seen them to be able to count them. My 
I just lost my place in here. Whoops, I'm in chapter 8. Excuse me here. Verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida while he had dismissed the crowds. After leaving them, he went up onto a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on the lake. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went up with them, walking on the lake, and he was about to pass them by. I don't know what to do with that. Jesus is walking on the water. There's the boat. He's just walking on by. But they saw him walking on the lake, and they thought he was a ghost. They were seeing as human beings see. He must be a ghost. He can't be Jesus. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. Listen to this verse. They were completely amazed... For they had not understood about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. That may be the saddest verse of Scripture there is. Jesus is opening their eyes to be able to see, and not only does the blindness affect them, it affects their hearts as well. They refuse to see the reality that Jesus is portraying before them. If you turn to Mark chapter 8, verse 1 now. Realize the disciples had just fed 5,000 people and not counting women and children. The disciples had participated in it, seen it, counted the leftovers. Now we come to chapter 8, just a few weeks later. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called the disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of these have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anybody get enough bread to feed them? That has to be the stupidest question anybody asked Jesus. He has just enabled them He didn't do it. He just enabled them to feed 5,000 people. Now there's 4,000. Easier. How are we going to do this? They're blind. And they're deaf. If I was Jesus, I would not have been so kind to them. But here's the truth of the matter. Jesus is not just compassionate on those people that are hungry. Jesus is also compassionate on those people that are blind and deaf because he knows that they were tricked back by the serpent and that that effect, that fall, is still impacting them down to this day. He has compassion on the blind and the deaf. May I ask you the question? Do you have equal compassion on those people that act as if Jesus is not standing in front of us, who act as if Jesus is not speaking, who acts as if Jesus does not exist? Do we have compassion 
on the blind? So, he says, how many loaves do you have? Same wording as in chapter 6. Seven, they replied. Oh, man, they've got more resources now than they did before. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. And when they had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples and set before the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well, and gave the small fish, or he gave the thanks and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate, and I love this phrase, when you eat at the Lord's table, and they all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left. About 4,000 men were present, and he sent them away. Now listen, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to another region. Listen to, would you skip down to verse 14? The disciples had forgotten to bring bread. (laughs) That is so funny. You've got Jesus. What's the problem? Well, if you're blind and deaf, it is a major problem. For they only had one loaf with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Watch out. Watch out, the blind will get blinder and the deaf will get deafer. Watch out. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. What do you do when people around you actually hear the voice of Jesus speak and you then treat, it, treat him like his opinion is insignificant or non-existent? You're going to see that again and again in the Gospels. Jesus speaks And people actually look at him, but don't even hear. Aware of their discussions, Jesus asked them, this is verse 17, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears to fail to hear? Don't you remember when I was... When I broke the five loaves and fed the 5,000, how many baskets fulls did you pick up? Twelve. When I broke the seven loaves and the 4,000, how many baskets fulls were picked up? Seven. Do you still not understand? And the answer is no. We don't have time at this point. I would love to be able to spend a lot of time talking about what I call a Markin sandwich. A number of times in Mark's gospel, we will find two stories told side by side that actually create bookends for an entire passage. Mark chapter 8 and Mark chapter 10 are that. Mark chapter 8 is the healing of the first blind man in the gospel of Mark. It is where Jesus comes up to this man, begins the healing, and says, do you see? And he says, I see people, I see men, but they actually look like trees. And then he touches them again, and he can see clearly. Now, don't be surprised that the very next episode is Jesus asking Peter, who do people say that I am? The answer is to remind you of the blind man. Peter declares, you are the Messiah. But he only sees partly. Because Jesus then begins to say this, don't tell anybody about me being the Messiah. 
because the Son of Man will suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. And on the third day, rise again. And Peter actually rebukes Jesus in the most forceful language of the New Testament and says, this will never be. And Jesus then turns and rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan, because you do not have in mind, you don't understand, you don't see, you don't hear what the kingdom is all about. Peter needs to be touched a second time to heal his blindness. The story of the blind man is not just an isolated story. You go, I like miracles of blindness. No. It's talking about there needs to be, there needs to be this touch where you begin to see and then you will allow the belief in Jesus to transform the way you see everything. You see the Messiah as somebody powerful that can destroy your enemies. Jesus says, I'm sorry, I have compassion on them. I don't want to kill your enemies. I want to make your enemies your friends. Will you side with me on that? No. I want my enemies dead. Then you're blind. You can't see. Don't be surprised then that Jesus goes on and teaches the best teaching of what the kingdom life looks like in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. Chapter 10, we have the story of two disciples, James and John, and come to Jesus. And they say, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we want. Oh, I can't imagine what Jesus' heart must have been like. So he asks, what do you want me to do? When you come into your place of glory, can one of us sit on your right and one of us sit on your left? Have you ever heard a more self-serving request? We want a place of honor in your kingdom. Have you not heard a single thing that I've said? Oh, oh, oh that's right, you're deaf. Have you not seen anything that I've done? How I've played and valued the little children, the outcast, the poor? Have you not seen that? Oh, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're blind. And then the next story is about a man by the name of Blind Barnabas. Now, Barnabas is not his name. That just simply means the son of Timaeus. This is a no-named blind person who's sitting by the road. And he actually hears, I love that, he hears Jesus coming. A blind man that can hear just fine. And he cries out, Son of David, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the disciples quiet him down. Shh, shh. Don't bother the Messiah. He will not listen to them. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus says to the disciples, you call him to me. Take heart. The Messiah is calling. And he comes to Jesus. And Jesus says to him in exactly the same language to the disciples, what do you want me to do? They want honor. Barnabas says, I want to see the gospel story in a nutshell. I'm blind. I want to see. He already can hear. I want to see. Go. Your faith has healed you. Now listen very carefully. Go. He is set free to go wherever 
He wants to go. And the most powerful passage of Scripture is the closing of this story, where it says, he got up and followed him on the way. Blind Bartimaeus could go anywhere he wanted to. In the very next story, Mark chapter 11, is Jesus entering into Jerusalem. The place that his disciples said, we don't want to go there. I'll go anywhere but Jerusalem. Blind Bartimaeus, he can see, he can go anywhere, and he gets right behind Jesus and goes where he's going. Bartimaeus did what I asked you to do at the very beginning. When you can see and you can hear, you go exactly where Jesus is going. You set your spiritual compass according to his. You say, I can see, and I'm going to follow you. So what's the cure? We see the problem. We're diagnosed as blind and diagnosed as deaf. What is the cure? The cure is in Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, we find Jesus on the cross. And Jesus on the cross is where blindness is actually taken care of. Jesus is on the cross. The People are coming by and watching him on the cross. They're wagging their heads and they're causing insults to go against him. And one of the, the high priests comes along and says to him, we know who you are. Come down from the cross, then we will see, and then we will believe. Do you hear those words? Then we will see. You perform a miracle here. Would you like to know the greatest miracle, I think, in the Bible? the miracle not done. It's where Jesus could have come down from the cross and he chose not to. He remained there because this is where the cure comes. And we hear him cry out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen to those words. Eloi, Eloi, what do the people hear? They hear Elijah. He's calling Elijah. At the moment when Jesus is revealing his fullness to the world, they're still deaf. They can't hear what he's saying. And somebody grabs a, a reed, puts a sponge on it, puts wine vinegar on it and gives it to him to drink and say, let's wait to see if indeed Elijah comes to take him down. Because in the ancient world, Elijah was not just the forerunner of the gospel, John the Baptist. Elijah was actually one to relieve people's suffering. And they think that if God's going to interact, he'll interact now to relieve suffering. But that's not the will of God. They're blind to that. The will of God is that he remains on the cross. And then you hear these words, and Jesus uttered his last. In the very next verse, it says this, and the curtain in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. It's the very same word as the heavens being split open, and you can see into heaven. Now the temple is split open, and you can actually see the face of Yahweh. And then the centurion who stood in front of him, listen to these words, 
heard his cry and saw him die. Do you hear that? Heard his cry from the cross and saw him die said this, Surely this man is the Son of God. What heals your blindness? The very cross and the death of Jesus. The very man, the centurion, who probably is standing there with a, a bloody hammer in his hand that just executed Jesus, he is the first person to have spiritual eyes to recognize who Jesus is. So, did you know that there is no way anybody was going to see who Jesus was without the cross? Otherwise, it becomes superfluous. If it's not necessary for people to be cured of blindness, we would have found another way. Your ears are dug out. Your eyes are touched and healed by you recognizing that Jesus died for you. And without the cross, there's no healing of the eyes. There's no healing of the ears. There's no transformation of the soul for you to be compassionate like Jesus was compassionate. The, the blindness in the biblical world comes about from the fall is actually redeemed in the cross and in the resurrection. Luke's gospel. Jesus appears on the road to Emmaus with Cleophas and the other disciple, and they are walking on the way. But Jesus comes to be with them, but they don't recognize him. No great surprise. I mean, Jesus is not playing disguise. He doesn't have a Halloween costume on. He's there. Actually, it says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Is that the work of the fall? Could, could be. Jesus asked the disciples this question, what are you guys talking about on the way? It, there's got to be a smile on his face. I mean, if this was done by Hollywood, you would know there would be that kind of smirk. Well, what are you guys talking about? Are you the only person that doesn't know what's going on? I mean, Jesus of Nazareth was, was killed. We had, listen, we had hoped that he was going to redeem Israel. But obviously, he's not. And then he begins to have the Wilbur Williams class of all time, where he opened up the scriptures and opened up their minds to be able to understand what Moses and the scriptures said. And he's about to, like he was on the water walking and about to pass on by. Once again, he's going to pass on by these disciples and they invite him in for dinner. And he's in dinner. And he takes the bread and he breaks it. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. You cannot know who Jesus is about the cross. But you can also not know who Jesus is without putting yourself in the pathways of the habits of the church, of the, the means of grace that the church has placed before you. Whether that be communion, whether that be worship, whether that be fasting, 
whether it be the searching of scriptures, all of these things are means to make sure your eyes are always healthy. I don't know about you, but I, I told you I had eye surgery, and I'm supposed to go to the doctor every year to have my eyes checked. I'm not sure what's going to happen if there's bad news, but there's always been good news. But really, the issue in my family is not my eye surgery. It's that the, my, my mother had what's called macular degeneration, where she incrementally went blind. I'm terrified that at some point, I might become spiritually blind and not be able to see what Jesus is doing. That I'll become spiritually deaf and not be able to hear that voice, still small voice. If I lose my eyesight, I will be sad. If I will lose my spiritual eyesight, I would be devastated. I'm begging you tonight begging you, as we begin this move from seen to unseen, will you put yourself, will you put yourself in touch with the means of grace that will allow you to see what Jesus sees, hear what Jesus says, to watch his kingdom be ushered in? The practices are there. I beg of you in particular, make this word a higher priority in your life than it is right now. Take and eat. Taste that the Lord is good. He wants to speak through this. He's begging you to spend time with him. I'm just asking you, I'm not even asking you to give him equal footing because he is Jesus. He can, he can make 10, 15 minutes go a whole lot farther than Hollywood can make five hours go. But give him an opportunity to speak into your life. Give him time to show you pictures of the kingdom that you've never seen before. Blindness. Deafness. It is the curse. And I'm here to tell you that the death and resurrection of Jesus reverses the curse and will give you eyes to see and ears to hear.